The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, if you've been around for a while, you might remember that I have mentioned before that when I first started in full-time vocational ministry, I started in youth ministry. I was a youth pastor. And so my first job out of school was working for a church in the Rio Grande Valley. And so I was working with junior high and senior high students. And the first week of my first job ever, I walked into our church building and I was met by an older member of the church. He was in his mid seventies and kind of hunched over two thin threads of hair, just laid across the top of his head, matted down with some pomade from 1955. And he was very nice and outgoing to me. And he welcomed me into their church. And he says, good luck. It won't make any difference. And so what all of his years had taught him was that good kids came from good families and became good adults. And it really didn't matter what people like me or anybody else did, that all of that is really rooted in people's homes and in their families, and that the track record, at least the track record that he had been able to chart and know, had been that good families produced good kids. That was his reality. But you know as well as I do, especially if you've been around church life and church world for a while, that there are all kinds of stories that are counter-arguments to that story. I think of my friend Kim, Kim came from an unbelieving home. Actually, it was an abusive home, but she was a pretty good high school athlete playing volleyball and basketball. And a friend of hers invited her one day to come to FCA. And they kept inviting her to FCA. And at FCA, she discovered Jesus. And so Kim went all in. Her friend invited her to her church. Kim ended up graduating high school and going to Abilene Christian University, which is where I went and that's where I met her. And Kim is actually the one, she was my friend and she was my wife's friend, who encouraged us to date one another. And she's gone on and had a great life as a social worker and working in schools and has an incredible family. We all know stories about that. But if we're being honest or at least if I'm being honest. I have as many stories about someone like Kim as I have the opposite of someone like Kim. Like churches love those stories. It's like being a bad golfer. Like most of that long, slow, four hour walk is awful. You're just spraying balls everywhere. But there's that one shot, that one hole that makes you go, oh, I want to do this again. When I think about that first week, he wasn't entirely wrong. Or at least often I have felt like he was right. So one of my first students ever was a kid named Keith. And Keith loved our group and he loved church. He had a fabulous family. And he was one of our leaders, our key leaders when he was in junior high. 
But when he went into high school, his parents decided that they didn't mind being Keith's mom and dad, but they really minded being each other's husband and wife. And the divorce devastated him. He didn't know what to think. He didn't know what to think about his life or his parents. He didn't know what to think about God. And slowly, he just withered away. And once he finally graduated high school, anything in his life that somehow resembled faith was gone. One of my closest friends in the world is named Jonathan. Jonathan pastors a church in Little Rock, Arkansas. And he did what I did. He went to a Christian college, and then he went to a Christian seminary. And when you're there at a Christian college and Christian seminary, what you meet are other people who are at a Christian college and Christian seminary. And so, so many of the people that he went to school with left school, and they went into their own ministries or started ministries or nonprofits doing all of that. But then about when Jonathan was in his mid-30s, he noticed that one after another after another not just left the work they were doing, but left faith altogether. And he didn't understand why. So last year, Jonathan started a podcast called Bonafide. And Bonafide just means good faith. And what he does on good faith is he invites all of the people that he has known throughout the years who have left faith just to hear their story. And what kept coming up over and over and over again is simply this, that there was an event or a question was raised and his friends didn't know what to do with those questions, with that event. Maybe about five years ago, for those of you who pay attention to such things, there were several Christian musicians and artists who decided that the Christian faith was no longer for them. Because what happened for them was that they had a question about faith that there wasn't an answer for, or at least an answer that they found satisfactory. And what shocked me at the time was it wasn't even as if their questions were all that sophisticated. Like those are the kinds of questions that people have been asking for centuries. And it's not as if there aren't really good responses to many of those questions, but they were a part of a system, part of a church, part of a group that told them, you just don't ask questions like that here. Heard an interview with Trevor Noah and he was talking about how his parents came to faith. And he says it was almost overnight that one day his world was one way and the next day it was completely different. That all of the music that his parents listened to, all of the, the pop and funk music was just thrown out and all of this new Christian music came in. But Trevor went to school and he came home and he asked his parents about dinosaurs. And why there are no dinosaurs in the Bible. And his parents just didn't have compelling responses to those kinds of questions. Their faith was passionate, but pretty shallow. And if we're honest, all of us know that for as many stories as there are 
about someone who's come to faith. There are just as many about people who have lost their faith. And there have been times over the two and a half decades that I have served a local church where I have wondered deeply, does any of this make a difference? Does it make a difference at all to anyone? Like, was he right? And if you're wired in any way like I am, there are two aspects of life that I detest. I hate inefficiency and unproductability. I hate being inefficient and not being productive. And so often when I look over relationships and what people have done and what people have not done, it feels to me like so much of that has been unproductive and inefficient. And maybe it's, maybe it's not just me. You're probably like that too. Like, I hate to waste my time. I think everybody hates wasting their time. A couple of years ago for Christmas, my wife Rochelle got me a journal that says simply on the cover of it, list of people who have wasted my time. None of you are in it. Well, yeah, I guess none of you are in it. And I wonder if everything actually does simply lead to entropy. You know, entropy, this idea that life doesn't naturally lead to order, it leads to disorder. That everything is sort of moving in one direction and for anything to ever be really good, you have to maintain it in a certain way because things just lead to disorder. So Rochelle, my wife, has a particular way. She likes to keep the dishes in the kitchen. So a couple of years ago, she gets up one Saturday morning, she takes all of the dishes out of all of the cabinets, cleans all the cabinets, cleans all the dishes, puts the dishes back in the cabinets where, where they are supposed to be, and then lassos me and our girls into the kitchen to explain to us and show us where all of the dishes are supposed to be. And ever since that day, at least once a week, she complains to us that the dishes in the kitchen aren't where they are supposed to be. And I want to tell her, none of us care about where the dishes are supposed to be. I don't go around thinking about where the dish is supposed to be. I think, where would Catherine have put this dish? And I explained to her, life just leads to entropy, a disorder. But just, just when I start to think that entropy will rule the day, I realize that productivity and efficiency might not be 
all it's cracked up to be, at least not in the ways that I think it is. I don't know how many of you have seen the Oscar-nominated film Zone of Interest, but Zone of Interest tells the story of Rudolf Haas and his family. And Haas is the commandant of Auschwitz during World War II. He runs Auschwitz, but his family lives with him just on the other side of the wall of Auschwitz. And his wife loves it. It is their dream life. Haas's mother comes to visit and she shows her all around the house and how beautiful it is. And she takes her out to the garden and tells her what she's growing and shows her where the kids play and where they swim in the pool. And we never see over the wall, except for the billows of smoke and occasionally we hear the screams. And late in the second act of the movie, Haas reports to his wife that he has been promoted. And he sits around a table with other Nazi officers on the verge of his promotion and we find out that he is being promoted because he is so efficient, so productive, that of all of the concentration camps, of all of the death camps, his works the best, that he has streamlined the best way to kill the most Jews. There's a reality of dealing with people. People, other people, are inconvenient. Relationships are inefficient. And the best way to make a bad relationship is to try and make it efficient and productive and focused. Every person I am in relationship with is inconvenient. Everyone, my youngest daughter is vegan, which takes the restaurants that we can eat in from this to this. I don't wanna eat vegan. I don't want to tell people where I am or where I'm going or what I'm doing. I don't want to have to tell people how I'm spending my money. I love it when some of you come to church and you are pregnant with your first child and I say to you, congratulations. And what I'm thinking is, you will never sleep the same way again. <laughs> Human beings are not production units. Relationships are inefficient because that's not what relationships are about. And so as Ryan mentioned, today we start a new series that we will be walking through the rest of Lent. And we're going to be talking about the parables of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. 
And, and think about this in terms of a companion piece to what we did last year when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. This is what the Sermon on the Mount looks like in real life as Jesus continues to talk about it and develop it. It's the Sermon on the Mount in practice. And Jesus begins to talk and teach in parables. And many of these parables are about what Jesus calls the kingdom. And the idea that we take from the Sermon on the Mount, that the kingdom of God is available for you to live in right here, right now, every day. And as a matter of fact, in several parables, when Jesus is teaching, he says things like, the kingdom of God is like and when you hear those words, what Jesus is saying is this is how you ought to live. Like if you want to live inside God's kingdom, as if the full presence of God's kingdom were actively involved in your life, this is what it would look like. And so when Jesus begins to teach in parables in Matthew 13, he tells a strange little parable, but it's the kind of parable that you have to know, you have to understand in order to understand the rest of the parables. And this is what Matthew says as he introduces us to Jesus's parables. He says, that same day, Jesus left the house and went to sit by the sea. Large crowds gathered around him and he got into a boat on the sea and sat there. The crowd stood on the shore waiting for his teaching. And so Jesus began to teach. On this day, he spoke in parables. Here is his first parable. Once there was a sower who scattered seeds. One day he walked in a field scattering seeds as he went. Some seeds fell beside a road and a flock of birds came and ate all those seeds. So the sower scattered seeds in a field, one with shallow soil and strewn with rocks. But the seeds grew quickly amid all the rocks without rooting themselves in the shallow soil. Their roots got tangled up in all the stones. The sun scorched these seeds and they died. And so the sower scattered seeds near a path. This one covered with thorny vines. The seeds fared no better there. The thorns choked them and they died. And so finally the sower scattered his seeds in a patch of good earth. At home in the good earth, the seed grew and grew. Eventually the seeds bore fruit and the fruit grew ripe and was harvested. The harvest was immense, 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I don't have a garden, and I have never been a farmer, but both my grandfathers were farmers. And I spent my summers working on their farms in Mississippi, which is how I knew I did not want to be a farmer. But when I read this story, I don't know a whole lot about farming. But I do know this, only the dumbest farmer would farm this way. I've got a good friend who gardens. And in the upcoming weeks, he will start the process of gardening for this year. But the process for gardening won't start for him in the garden. It'll start in his dining room and on his dining room table. And on that dining room table, there will be 
pots and soil and seeds and sticks and all the kinds of lamps and lights you need to make something grow. And it will be in there. He will keep it there for weeks and weeks and weeks before he takes it and puts it in the ground in the garden. And he won't even do all of that at once. There'll be a different time for cabbage and a different time for tomatoes and a different time for cucumbers. And you've driven through farm country. You've seen the immense machinery it takes on these large farms to plant and care and reap because farming, growing something, gardening takes time and intentionality, nurture, and care. That's how you get something to grow. But in this story, this sower is just throwing it everywhere. Only the world's worst farmer would farm like this. Unless this farmer's main concern is that he covers the entire earth with seed. That there won't be a place that doesn't get the seed. And Jesus is painting a picture of us, of a sower going out into the world with grace and hope and generosity and forgiveness. And this sower throws it everywhere. And I don't know about the relationships in your life. But I'm guessing in a room with this many people in it that there are at least a few of us who have a relationship in our life and we look at it and think, I have been as kind as I can possibly be. I have been gracious. I have been loving. I have been sacrificial. I have been generous. I have done it all and it doesn't look like it makes a difference. I had a conversation with someone in my family just last month, and at the end of this conversation, I was so done with them. And I hung up the phone and I thought, I am done, I am out. Like, this is the last call, this is the last text, I am through with it. Until I realize that in every relationship that I'm in, I am half of that relationship, and I get to choose how I want to be in that relationship. And I know of a story where the sower just keeps sowing. And the good news is that the invitation of the scriptures for you is to be the kind of person in all of these relationships in wherever you go, to be the kind of person who sows 
and trust that God is the one who grows. The outcome is not up to you. Your job is to sow. Because the love and grace, the reconciliation and freedom of God is so abundant that it can just land anywhere. And the outcome is not up to you. The sowing is up to you. But Jesus does say at the end of this parable that when it takes root, it produces a great harvest. So Friday night, uh, I got to interview a man who is a new friend to me. This is him. His name is Jimmy Calhoun. And I have been blessed by God to do many fun, incredible things in my time as a pastor that my parents were really excited about, but nothing that they were overly excited about until Friday night because Jimmy Calhoun was the one-time bass player for Parliament Funkadelic and Sly and the Family Stone. And my father has never been more proud of me than Friday night. I told him that I was going to do this, and he started sending me questions for the interview, like just peppering me with it. Like He was not as excited about grandchildren as he was about Friday night. And I told him, I was like, that's, that's great. Um, we're probably not going to spend a lot of time talking about late 1970s Funkadelic, but, you know, keep them coming. And so Friday, before we were going to start the interview, Jimmy and I were having dinner. And I asked him, explain to me how you go from being the bass player for George Clinton to pastoring a church in Austin, Texas. And he said, I hit rock bottom. And he told me the story about growing up the son of a Baptist pastor, but being a kid who we would call a bad kid. He was kicked out of school, had to be bused to another school, and went into music, and went into a certain kind of music at a certain time in our history. And his life was what you would imagine it would be for a professional rock and roll musician in the late 70s. And he said, then I just hit rock bottom and a guy on the street in Southern California told me, there's a church down there. If you go down there, they will take care of you. And so he did. And so they did. And soon Jimmy was hired to be the janitor at the church. And one afternoon playing basketball with one of the pastors there, the pastor told him, he's like, I have a feeling that God is nudging me to encourage you to become a pastor. And Jimmy said, yes. And so they put him through school and he 
finished and he left that church to go plant another church in Southern California. It wasn't very long after that, that that church in Southern California was the largest predominantly white church in California with a black senior pastor. And so he left there after a while to plant churches in Belize and came back to the States and has worked in London and Maryland and Florida. And now he works with a disabled community in Austin, Texas. And Ecclesia, this is what I want you to know. There are people in your life who will return cruelness for your kindness. There will be people who you befriend who will betray you. There are folks who will appear to be and say that they are one thing and end up being quite something else, and it will break your heart. The word of the Lord for you and for me is to keep sowing because the seed of love and hope and grace and freedom, there's just enough to keep throwing it around. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.